Staple the Can Deals, the show with no name podcast, where we talk to creators around the world. Today we have a special guest, as well as my chief editor and executive producer, Julia Felix. Hi, guys. Our guest today is Elizabeth Black. Her short bio is that she has a long history in public speaking. Master of Ceremony for music events, as well as conferences. She is an accomplished weapons expert, medieval weapons, as well as sword fighting. You had a rapid evolution from unpaid to paid acts in stand-up comedy in the North England Midlands circuit. And then tragedy struck in the shape of a car accident, interrupting that ascension. Then you had to move to Finland for personal reasons. Did I miss anything? No, I have about 10 attempts to die uh, on my CB, but I'm, I'm doing all right, still not dead. <laughs> when you say 10 attempts, are we talking like, you know, Point Break, the 2015 remake attempts <laughs> at death? Some of it. No, I, I just, I am both a bit of a risk taker, also an idiot, and partly just have this ability to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But little things like when I lived in Papua New Guinea, everyone was telling me that they'd walked up this volcano. So I was like, right, if everybody's doing it, I'm going up the volcano. So I got a couple of local guys and I asked them, I want to go up the volcano. Yeah, we'll take you. You need to get up early because it's going to get really, really warm going up a volcano. So we set off just as the sun's coming up and it was incredibly hot. I mean, I like climbing up. The, the black sands of a volcano. Now, everybody had told me, oh, it's about a three hour hike to do this. It took us half an hour to get to the top of this volcano. And I'm looking down into all this lava and they told me, oh, you, you know, you have to throw some money in, you have to appease the gods and all this. So I did all this. And then we were back down and we're like sitting, making breakfast in the hot water, like boiling eggs in the hot water by the bottom of this volcano. Get back and I said, oh, no, no, it took me like 20 minutes, 30 minutes to get up there. And I was like, what, what? And it turned out that I'd gone up the live volcano. Everyone else just goes to <coughs> dead one. And literally about a month after, the whole side of this volcano just blew out. And it made me laugh because <laughs> the, guy, the guy who was taking me up there was like, if you see me run down this hill, you don't, I'm not waiting for you. If it starts to rumble and I'm gone, you don't, I'm not going to wait for you. You come with me. And then like literally my mates were all sending me videos like, you know, that volcano you went up, it just literally blew up. So that's the sort of thing I do. Back to the point of throwing Sorry. money into a volcano that puts a whole new <laughs> angle on burning money. Doesn't it? Yeah. It was coins as well. They, they like metal. The volcano gods you can't just and also just blown away but it smells so bad Sulfur. like volcanoes oh they smell terrible they always say that's what i think that's where they got the idea for those fire and brimstone sermons you know what they smell like they smell like a nightclub at like uh, half three in the morning when it's closing oh that's a horrible smell especially in the bathroom yeah. <laughs> first question with a long career speaking in front of people usually using humor what was the catalyst of that moment of i'm going to try stand-up i'm going to do stand-up comedy what was that moment of what the fuck why not <laughs> the reason I, I did this was um actually another one of my near-death moments when i lived in papua new guinea and port moresby google it it's a beautiful place is one of the most dangerous cities in the world and I, I'm not going to go into detail but I was taken hostage which is a pretty traumatic traumatic situation which um sorry, say that I'll again. be honest which, with you you were taken hostage yeah uh so carjacking's rife but also um so so they thought that if they kept me they could get money from my government and it doesn't work like that I am I have the, the gift of the gab. Uh, that was partly one of the, the, the things I used to get out of it. But the other tip I'd been given was a friend of mine, a Papua New Guinean friend said, 
they make their own guns. They don't want to fire them because you don't know which way the bullet's going to go. And I just kept reminding myself of that. And I actually at one point made a bit of a joke saying, you don't want to fire that gun because, you know, it just change your life. Someone points a gun at you. But I did say to him, you know, like, you don't want to fire that because you don't know whether it'll kill me or kill you. That's not the point. That's a whole other podcast, the, the kind of thing. But about a year after this happened, so I was sent back home. So I, my, my life kind of fell apart a bit. But about a year later was when the post-traumatic stress disorder, the PTSD, kicked in. Of course. And I suddenly went from being able to speak in public, all the rest of it, suddenly couldn't even sit in a meeting. It just all, everything went. Like a serious anxiety attack? Yeah, it was like stage fright, but just for any kind of meeting or conference. So having gone from being a policy analyst and all the rest of it, and suddenly I couldn't do anything. And... I was doing something that was basically a form of therapy where you face up to your fears with the support of a therapist. And we decided that stand-up comedy was about the most terrifying way to beat your demons in terms of public speaking. So that's why I did stand-up comedy. And I, my first ever gig mm. was in a pub in Derby. For Derby. our non-UK listeners, Derby is where they will pronounce it Derby. <laughs> You did that well. Anyway, I do, yeah, I got all. And like many people, it went well for me. I have to say, you know, yeah. from my first gig, people were laughing. One of my jokes got a clap and I was hooked. That was it. It was like a drug. Done. It is the crack cocaine of showbiz. I did theater. I did sing. I was in a band called Twisted Chickens. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I know. I've been in improv theater and I've been in a couple of productions and yeah there is something magical that happens when you're on stage performing be it singing be it theater but stand up you're on your own and when you have a whole room of people laughing at something you said it's exactly like crack cocaine and no listeners I have not done crack cocaine I promise and I am not saying anything about crack cocaine. <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> now, it seems to me like you're a bit of a jack of all trades, often wearing more than one hat at a time. Just to list a few, a goth in all fields, an orator, an advocate. And this pandemic has really thrown a wrench into the answers we gave in the well-known question, where do you see yourself in five years from Given the upheaval 2020 has caused for all of us, can you tell us a bit about where you see yourself headed? Well, one of my issues, of course, is that at the very end of 2019, I totaled all one side of myself. Well, actually, I didn't do it. I was merrily driving along, minding my own business when this occurred. This time last year, mm. I was in intensive care with liver failure. So all my injuries were all down one side, all the right side of me. But I fractured my pelvis. And with anything that is that kind of impact, all of your internal organs get a good poof. You then pump someone full of all the drugs they need to save their life and to, to stop the pain. I mean, if you imagine, I'm going to be a bit graphic now, but part, one of my ribs, one of my ribs broke off and went through my lung. Oh. And it's something called a hemoneumothorax. And it's only usually seen with gunshot wounds and stabbings, that, that sort of thing. So I was in a bit of a bad way. Um, and then, of course, as I said, this time last year, exactly, the, the 30th of December, I was in intensive care because my liver had stopped, it completely failed. Right. So I kind of went into 2020 in a... Oh my God, thank God I'm alive. I mean, I actually can remember New Year's, New Year's Eve and I don't have very good memory because of the head injury. But I remember New Year's Eve, I was in a hospital bed with this tiny window and the woman across from me, she was desperately ill. She really was ill. And she said to me, is it, is it midnight yet? And I said, hang on, let me see. And I could just see the fireworks through this little window. And I was like, yeah, happy new year. It's gonna be a good one, 2020. We're gonna do okay. <laughs> you know i would give my i wouldn't donate anything actually but i would give my proverbial left arm to any conversation that transpired between anyone who has a regular psychic they consult 
<laughs> you know, like just go back in time to when they were like going, what's my year looking like? Your year is looking fantastic. You're going to be, oh wait, something's coming. I suddenly feel ill. Exactly. I think I ate a bat. I have actually done that. You've eaten a bat? Roasted in, or? I've eaten a bat. Then... It wasn't me what done it. I didn't do this. Papua New Guinea, in Papua New Guinea, a place called Magang, there's just bats everywhere. There's massive bats. And every night they come home to they're a staple source of protein in Papua New Guinea. And that's one of the things they eat there. But that was a long time ago. And it wasn't my fault. And also as a goth, I felt eternally guilty doing that. I have to say, I'm still doing goth penance for my bat eating antics. So what is exactly goth penance, pray tell? With the makers wear pink uh, and put our hair. <laughs> Do you know one of my favorite comedians, one of my favorite comedians, Steve uh, Stephen Hughes. Hughes, he makes a joke about Anya's like silence colored in. And he, he also has this, Jules, you'll love this. He's this Australian comedian, Steve Hughes. You got to look his videos up there on YouTube. And he has okay. this other great joke about like his CD. It'll be a custom, you know, from the computer. And he goes, you know, I've got like Pantera, Slayer, a bit of Anya. You need a buffer. He <laughs> 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 does do something to you. I listen to Do Pass by Ramstein before I go on stage. That's what I've got in my headphones. It hypes me up because you need the energy. Ooh. But you can't listen to Slayer all the time. You can't, he's right. To answer the question now, where do I see myself in five years time? Well, most of 2020 was about surviving. I have to mm. admit, so 1st of February, having gone through the liver failure, get a bit better, 1st of February, terrible chest pains, turns out I've got a pulmonary embolism. So that was like, oh shit, nearly died again. Need to stop this. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of decided then, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. It's just showing up. Jules, have you ever had any anything similar to what she's described? Near-death experiences? Mm. I we, mean, we, we've yeah, decided to go into the venture of near-death experiences. A couple. I've had a gun pointed at me a few times. I had someone chase me through a foreign country. July of 2015 was the last thing that was close to a near-death experience. I understand what you mean by walking into that new year with the, okay, here we are. I've survived this much. I'm just, I'm glad I took a breath today. I'm glad I got out of my bed today. That is exactly it. And having that, I was like, right, I, I'm not going to let this beat me. And I actually got back up on stage in, in February. So having had the, all of this happen to me, literally as soon as they let me out of the hospital, I was like, right, I'm going back to comedy. And I did a gig, literally, I was still on my Zimmer frame. I couldn't walk. They managed to get me and it was upstairs. So I'm up, getting up the stairs bit by bit with the Zimmer frame, my mates carrying behind her. Performed, like literally propping myself up and I did, I did my set about being in hospital. I compared it to being at a festival. <laughs> like, yeah. it, honestly, the, the disorientation of waking up in a trauma center and everybody having to keep reminding you where you are. And they go, um, do you want any drugs? Uh, yeah, this is, this, is like a, this is like the best festival I've ever been to. And there's this really cool thing where the person giving out medication has right. like a tabard on. And I guess it's to stop the, them getting it wrong, but it says, drug run, do not interrupt. Now, can you imagine wearing that, that in an airport? <laughs> I, want that, I want that as a t-shirt. Anyway, and then they go, and they got, so basically what, what I was doing my whole act on was about their obsession with, they're like, can we take your blood pressure and have you opened your bowels today? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I've just woken up. No, I know, right. but I, have you on your bars today? And I'm like, I've just woken up. I really hope I haven't. <laughs> yeah, that's like a festival. Honestly, I didn't know. I didn't, I, and I kept saying, why am I here? And they were like, really patiently having to keep replying, you know, you, you've been in a really nasty car crash. And I was like, why are all these wires in me? You know, it was, it, so that was, that's it. And I've lost track of what the question was. Well, no, you know what's funny about the gun being pointed 
is because when I was 15, I went to visit my older brother in Miami. And, you know, growing up in the 80s, like I did, I saw a lot of action movies. So, and he had a gun. He had a Beretta 9mm. And he took me to, there was this gentleman he introduced me to, this old elderly gentleman, was an American, converted to Islam. But like, you know, those old retirees that have a workshop and they start to build stuff. And you like this, actually. He built working models out of wood and metal and whatever. Ballistas, crossbows, catapults, a working guillotine. He had a World War I service revolver, which he allowed me to fire off around in his garage. And you imagine being 15 in a house being told, here, try shooting. And I was like, what, <laughs> what do I shoot? And he got this yellow pages, like a phone book, and wrapped it in sellotape and in scotch tape or electrical tape a couple of times, like really well. And he goes, now here, shoot that. So obviously I get the gun, I aim the gun, but I'm trying not to look like, oh, I don't wanna, you know, but like at the same time trying to look hard, but when I shoot it and we're in the garage, so the echo of the gun is really, wow. And he goes, okay, so you see the bullet hole? I'm like, yeah. And obviously it doesn't go all the way through. Then he gets another gun and he goes, now fire this. This has been loaded with hollow points. And I don't know if Jules knows what, I don't know if you know what a hollow point is, the design of it. And listeners, if you don't know what a hollow point is, the bullet's head, actually the bullet is the little part that comes out of the cartridge, but the bullet has a little crater and little grooves so that when it spins down the barrel, and this is what I saw the result when I fired off the round into the yellow pages was the entry hole was like this tiny little, the size of the caliber of the bullet. Then he flipped the yellow pages over and there was a crater. There and then he said, never ever point a gun loaded or unloaded at another person, ever. If you ever go to a gun range, never be in the psychology that even jokingly that you point the gun because once this wife was at the gun range with her husband. And in hindsight, when he was telling me this story, I'm like going, uh-huh, sure she didn't know. Shot her husband in the foot by accident. <laughs> now, I'm sorry. Now we can think about the context, uh, the context of this years later, like as a 15-year-old going, holy shit, okay, I'll never point a gun at another person. And then as I've seen life and I've seen married people argue and everything, I'm like, uh-huh, sure, it was an accident. Of course it was an accident. Because I'm pretty sure he was trying to say something like, oh, you stupid woman, you've forgotten this again. And, and she just probably went, you know what, Frank? Fuck you. <laughs> you know, blew a hole in his foot. And I'm sure she was aiming for something else. But I would like to say before we go on, I have gothed up for you. I don't know if you can see. I'm really impressed. I really am. They're really lovely. I'm not even, I've not made much of an effort at all. At least you're impressed. That's good. I do feel at this point, I need to do the disclaimer of, I have never shot anyone. Accidentally or intentionally? Yeah. <laughs> or? The one thing that I, I have a crossbow, no. but I'm, I'm very careful with that because of course. that is, it's a very dangerous weapon. And I would never wave that around. Uh, do you know, I once made, talking about people who make things, I made a trebuchet, a little one. It was for the mock mayor of Penzance. He was having a campaign about, you know, people putting dog poo in plastic bags and then just putting it in the bushes. Yeah. Like how that's worse. That's yeah, worse. God, like yeah. horses, it's really bad. It's bad. So I was helping with his campaign by inventing the dog poo trebuchet. And so it was a, a built a trebuchet, a small scale trebuchet. And if you don't know a trebuchet, it's like you put a weight in it and it flings a weapon. It's a siege warfare it's for breaking down the walls of castles it was like the big bertha of ballistas catapults and um, siege weapons it's such a fantastic siege weapon but i built a scale model and basically the idea was it would fling poo into the bushes out of the way so you put the dog poo in and you just fling it so that it's out of the way no one's going to tread in it 
and we had so much fun testing it out. The things we, you know, chocolate pudding. You know, chocolate pudding. We were putting oh. that in the trebuchet and see. Oh, we had some. <laughs> I'm just imagining someone getting hit with chocolate pudding <laughs> from the dog poo trebuchet. But I've not answered your question. So having then been told punctured lung, liver failure, all this. As soon as COVID came along, I got told it'll kill you. Get in the house, shut the door, see no one. And I had 112 days entirely on my own. Oh. Only saw on a Thursday evening, my wonderful friend Claire, shout out to the best human being on the planet. Every Thursday, she'd bring my shop in and we'd literally touch hands through the window. 112 days where that was my only human contact. I went completely mad. Uh, can imagine. I was like... Robinson Crusoe in my own house. I built a den in the front room out of sheets, like a kid. I built a den just to have somewhere different to go. I'd got so fed up of. Yeah. Of and because I broke my pelvis and my sacrum, oh. that bone. Ow. Yeah. So I couldn't walk and uh, I couldn't really do very much at all. You can imagine. That's why I'm single. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> no one is gentle enough anymore. I tell you, that's a sick joke. I tell you, it's a really sick joke if you knew what happened to me. We've got into dark territory. I couldn't even go for a walk, is what I was trying to say. I did go a bit mad. Just, in, just getting through the year has been quite mad. So what, what I want for the next five years is totally reframed everything because mm. I just want to live in the moment. I learned mindfulness. So I've got a blog now where I talk about overcoming the things that have happened to me. Um, so I'm blogging around overcoming the experiences that I've been through, but also things like mindfulness, multi-sensory approaches to healing trauma, things like that, but all done from my perspective, like how mm. I experienced it. And I think that's probably, where do I see myself? My comedy career is destroyed. And we'll maybe talk about that as well uh, at some point. But Every um, time a question is asked, the floor is yours. I was told, actually, how, this is quite serious now, I was told that if I did, if I was to stand on the stage again, there were several people who would like to remove me from the stage with force. I actually received death threats this year, which <laughs> when you've had like 10 attempts at it, it's like meh. But no, it, it was a very, very weird thing to happen, to have people issuing death threats. And that's really made me think, do I want to be in, in stand-up comedy anymore? Because the, the circuit, as I've discovered, is incredibly toxic. It's, it's scary. So there's I've reevaluated that, but I mm. am now writing quite a lot. And uh, the podcast that I do, mm. quick plug for my own podcast, that podcast, we've got listeners all over the world, which is lovely. I love yeah. that. And the same with my blog. When I see the map, it's not a power thing. It's just like, oh, that's amazing. Someone in the Ukraine is listening to that. Or I've connected with someone in Paraguay. And I just love it because I love traveling and I love meeting people from all over the world. The idea that through podcasts and through blogging mm. and I think that's the answer to my question where do I see myself five years time I just want to be doing more of that and then traveling and the other mm. really lovely thing is out of all of this mm. is quite a lot of people in the states have said well if you're not wanted for stand up in the UK come, come to us so I've been offered gigs in other countries off the back of people sticking up for me so that's nice you should also so, look into the South African circuit because they are a really, I feel like the South African circuit is going to be where it's at over the next three or five years. So shout out to all the South African circuits, to Mario, to Mo Latif and to all the fans and shout outs to all our new listeners. Thank you for listening to this. Not over yet though. Not even close. Not even close. No. You know what I will say to the people who, who have issued death threats to me, you giving death threats to a disabled woman. That, that, you're a bit, that, you're a bit that, shit. That's, that's what the Nazis used to do in the concentration camps. But I will be honest with you, I am getting better and I've got, I've got enough strength in it, just not the dexterity. And I'm weightlifting again. So I am getting there. I don't yeah. have the dexterity. I've not, I've not got much feeling in this hand anymore, but I'm yeah. getting there. I'm just suddenly reminded <laughs> of that scene in Criminal Minds where the native Indian what was that measurement of distance that he's effectively more lethal than the other person with a gun? It's like something like six feet that you don't have a chance of firing that gun at me. That's, that's a badass line. 
Um, <laughs> I think our next question is going to come from my co-anchor. I've gone through a lot of very similar experiences mm. to you, and you, you and I have talked at length about about my story and your story. And I'm not going to go into deep detail about it, but I ha- I found myself on the run as well, and I almost died twice. And so, I think I just want to provide a space for you to tell your story in your own words and just take whatever chunk of time it is that you want for that. You're in a safe space. Thank you. To be clear, yeah. everyone here has your back. You're not alone in this. And my name is safe, but I, technically um... you are in a safe space. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the fact that your name is safe. It, 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 it's wonderful. I, what can I say? It's a difficult thing to talk about because it's, it's such a long story. And, and, and that's always the problem. I, I think for something like this is, you know, I, I went into comedy because I was still in the process of healing, healing from something incredibly traumatic. I actually started experiencing sexual harassment at my second gig. And I'll be honest, it was almost continual for the time that I was doing comedy from just sexist comments to downright stalk I mean stalking I, I've had two stalkers in the time I've been in comedy if somebody was going to ask me you know a tip for new female comedians mm. it would be never ever get involved romantically on the circuit no don't get involved with another comedian because I, and I know some make it work I do know that some get married yeah. some get, and, th- and those same people that are married can be together for years. And I've also seen comedians that got married and the fallout from their divorce was very sticky icky. Yeah, the problem is when you end up in, and I I don't wanna say too much about it. When you find yourself in a relationship that is is incredibly toxic, Mm. and then that all of that gets thrown into an open stage of the comedy circuit, you know, my, my entire life was made public. Private information being made public. J- jokes being made about me on stage, you know. And, and that's very difficult when you're as distinctive an act as I am. You know, there's no anonymous, it's not anonymous. If you're making jokes about a goth, um, there are not many of us on the circuit. No, and only I know you. Yeah, and, and I know them all. I, mm. I think I know them all. And so some really painful stuff went on for me. And I found that incredibly difficult. People will have heard a story. And that's the thing. You'll hear a story and you'll see things on social media. But, you know, it doesn't have to be true. People can post anything they want on social media. They can create fabrication. The other thing that I think people don't really understand is how easy it is for someone to be in your social media. They don't have, no one needs high level hacking skills to get into your social media when you've been in a relationship with them, if they've had your phone, if they've been in your home, if they've had access to your PC. Mm. So this whole thing about the sort of warfare that can go on, which sounds really, really far-fetched to people who are thinking, oh, you know, these are two people that the donut but when you've been in a relationship with someone and then they decide to smear your name they've actually got the tools to do that and I think also when we talk about domestic violence people often if, if there's no bruises no punch to the face no black eyes it's not always thought of as domestic violence mm. but when someone is systematically messing with your reality especially when you've got a head injury that I had uh, posting things on Facebook that you're the love of their life whilst at the same time hurling abuse at you and people on the outside see one thing and you're dealing with the actual on the inside the emotional psychological that kind of abuse that is as destructive to your personality to you as a person that then it's it's just as destructive as the, the as physical violence. It nearly it nearly destroyed me. I'll be honest with you. Lockdown was the best thing that could have happened to me because it kept me safe. I have an intimate understanding of what you're talking about right now. Because aside from 
four instances over the past decade from the human trafficking and everything that I got pulled into from all of that, four of them, four of them left marks, four out of dozens. And because there were only four, they were not believed. Yeah. And that is not, that is not an indication. The, the way when you are dealing with someone who to an almost psychopathic level is messing with the very fabric of your reality. And that sounds dramatic and trippy, but that's that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. It's a questioning of your sanity. It's a it's a re for me, for me, it was it was not a smear campaign. For for me, it was a brainwashing, rehardwiring that I had to work out of. It, no, it, brainwashing was the very specific. I, I use the it term wasn't specifically. Gas, it wasn't gaslighting. I or... mean, of, of course, of course, there's gaslighting involved. Yeah. But at the point yeah. to which I was at the apex of the most dangerous part of what I was involved in, it was it was beyond, beyond that. It was at that point two years of patterned behavior instilled in me. Right, two years of conditioning that I was subjected to to be this thing which is the only reason I was there. My mom, many, many years ago, like I think I was in my 20s when she showed me this film. She always loves the old black and white ones. And there was this one black and white film with Charles Boyer as the husband of, I forget the name of the actress, but it was set in Victorian times and the film was called Gaslight. When I saw the initial plot unfolding and there were a few times because I tend to not be tolerant of nasty characters being successful in a film and the way that the husband would be like moving her jewelry hiding it and making her think she lost it or manipulating the environment of his wife's life and making her question her sanity and making her doubt herself of what was she was seeing was real. And you know what's so funny is that, you know, time passed and I never heard the term gaslighting, but I remember the film, I could never forget. And then whenever I would see the term gaslighting appearing on social media and people talking about, you know, this person gaslighting or that person. And I think, you know, one thing I wanted to say to like both of you, uh, like, but more to our guest rather than my co-anchor about social media, because I know how my co-anchor feels. She fucking hates I don't. Me. I don't fucking do it. Something interesting happened today on Facebook. A British comedian commented something that, if you were to read it, it comes across slightly xenophobic about when, Hel uh, when Merkel from Germany took in a million refugees. And there were different responses some along the lines of okay bye i'm not gonna be your friend anymore because that's just a little bit too out there uh a friend of mine who's got mixed heritage but of the jewish background and is half israeli the worst thing you could call anyone that is jewish or israeli is hitler and somebody called him that. And I literally went on my laptop rather than on my phone so that I could type. And I was very careful not to hit enter because one thing I've noticed on social media, and I've seen it with Corona, I've seen it with politics, I've seen it with everything. Suddenly everyone who has a Facebook account believes that they are automatically an expert. So when women come forward, they'll always be that male comedian that tries to downplay it or victim blame. When somebody talks about something political, they'll always try and cover up their xenophobia with some other this, thing. This is a reality that, and, and I don't say this to downplay the importance of what you're saying, because what you are saying is important. But the reality is, from my standpoint and from the standpoint of a lot of women that I've had this conversation with, 
a lot of them are like, yeah, but that's something that we've always dealt with. And that that hateful, spiteful comment, that that bullshit underhanded saying, at one point it was someone literally whispering it under their breath. Now they type it on a keyboard. It's yeah. something that's been going on since since the dawn of time. And it's, it's not acceptable, but it's something that we've built a level of resilience to that we shouldn't have had to build a level of resilience to. You know what I mean? Like I wake up and I'm like, oh, someone has said something shitty to me today, right? I must <laughs> respond <we> <laughs> and I haven't had coffee yet. <laughs> right? I haven't even rolled out of bed and there it is. Shit on my screen. Here's your dose of remember, you might die today. Yeah. For me though, what, what the really big issue with all of this was that when you, when you try and call something out, the, the backlash is horrendous. And you know, if you, if you have any empathy, anyone listening to this, have, you know, tap into that now to think someone has just pulled themselves together enough to go public on something that's happened to them. Mm. All I wanted, all I wanted was him to stop telling jokes about me yeah. and for right. comedians, comedians and uh, promoters to keep me safe so I could carry on doing comedy. So the idea that, you know, um, it's not been proven, it, you know, I'm not asking anyone to be a court of law. And I, I wrote about this in my blog. That's not what I wanted. I just wanted people to keep me safe. To say, okay, all you're asking for is not to ever be on a lineup with me. Tell me if you're going to book me for a gig so that you can be safe. You know, the psychological harm, just seeing his face in, in a Zoom, he has damaged me that much psychologically. All I wanted was to, to be kept away from him. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not asking other comedians to be a court of law. I'm not asking them to decide whether or not it was proven. All I'm asking is, you know, those jokes to tell those jokes about your ex-partner who has been through hell at your hands, it's just not appropriate. You know, and if he's listening to this, I just want him to stop making jokes about me. Anyway, there's my little bit of anger. I'm told by my therapist that that's a really, really good sign. The anger and the rage, as shitty and as cliche it is about what I'm about to say, it's, it's fucking true. The anger and the rage is 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 proof that you're still fighting through that. And that points in directly. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, no, I'm not fucking giving up. I'm pissed. I'm pissed. And you know what? Yeah. You know what? Here's how I feel about this. Regardless of proof and facts and hearsay and what what you know the he said, she said, nobody's ever going to agree on that. That's not that's not what I'm here for. But you have every right to feel that level of rage and anger and frustration and hurt and all of that because those are valid human emotions that's that's something that's something you deserve to have it feels fucking shitty there's nothing good about it mm. there's nothing there's nothing good about it there was nothing good about me reliving the last four days like some of the worst two years of my life in the last four days there was nothing good about that but I'm glad I have my humanity. I'm glad I can feel the good things with the bad things because otherwise yeah. I feel nothing. And, but that is one of the things that maybe made me feel so strongly about all the other women that I was talking to that had gone through similar things. You know, right. I couldn't believe the number of stories. People saying to me, you know, like, what, what would you get? What tips would you give to young female acts now? I just want to say to, to people this, right, first of all, open mic is not regulated in any way, shape or form. Anyone can go and open an open mic, anyone. Convicted, somebody who has been convicted of violence against women can start an open mic. A paedophile could start an open mic. There's no checks, there's nothing. So when you go and do an open mic, don't trust anybody. They're just blokes down the pub. Or, you know, it, it might not just be men. But don't trust them. Don't get in cars with them. You know, this whole idea of the comedian's car share. One of the stories I've been told is of a woman being told, oh, I'll give you a lift home after the gig. She didn't know the guy, but trusted him because he was a comedian. He tried it on in the car, and when she told him to F off, he put her out on the hard shoulder of the M1. 
you hear all of those stories and it's funny many many years ago when i was really really young my mother told me how once she was sitting with a group of women and i don't know how the conversation went into this direction but my mother turned around and she said women are not to be trusted and they turn around and they said to her how can you say this and she goes i say this because i'm a woman and i know now this is the interesting thing and i'll explain where i'm going with this she was claiming or owning the fault of all women and i can turn around and say when somebody says oh not all men i'll be like unfortunately all men do sadly have a tendency to let go to lose themselves to get angry to go into their baser needs or their baser nature in either moments of high intoxication or whatever and something because i stopped drinking many years ago and i can comfortably say when a person says oh the alcohol made me do it is the adult equivalent of when the kid gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar and says oh the devil made me do it we had a, a very interesting year here in egypt with something that i won't go too much into because that's a whole podcast of its own which was about the egyptian equivalent of the me too movement a lot of men egyptian social media influencers got on their instagrams and literally told all the men that were doing harassment stop it just stop it and it's very interesting because if you look at the uk circuit surely women should be able to in a western country feel safe enough that they can exit their house go to a gig perform the gig and get back to their house in that same state of mind of right i'm going to go and make people laugh i'm going to go and bring joy to strangers and it's just really sad and i'm going to go out on a limb here and say that yes i've been lucky enough because as a booker myself for ronin comedy i'd like to know which are the men not to bring to a middle eastern country that frowns on sexual harassment two guys this happened in cairo recently two men they tried to harass a woman veiled woman by the way i might add not dressed without a headscarf wearing a headscarf and she refused to get into the minibus with them minibus or microbus we call them here they're those tiny little they're tiny they look like these mini vans but they're like six seaters eight seaters but they're tiny they ended up dragging her along the road and she died they sentenced them to jail 10 year sentence each because it was seen as manslaughter and not murder the fact is that in the middle east they come down harsh but at the same time there is that enabling boys will be boys don't press charges against these boys you'll ruin their lives and so on and so forth mentality which again i'm not going to try and get into because like i don't want to get arrested <laughs> for for defending justice i mean luckily here in egypt the women comedians don't actually face sexual harassment i haven't heard i'm pretty sure because we're a very small circuit we're like 50 phenomenal comedians 20 they're doing their effort they're doing their time open mics and what have you but i can say that we're less than 100 less than 100 comedians actively doing stand up stand up comedy sketch comedy writing content creative content for social media being on tv and being an advert and i would say that there are maybe three or four women comedians that i know of and pretty sure they're always treated with the utmost respect we in the middle east we always get this bad reputation we don't allow our women out no that's bullshit you know on the contrary if you go to cairo you go alexandria you'll see tons of women out and about my area which is a very heavy male dominated not so much don't see them all in large groups it just baffles my mind that that happened to women acts and that that happened to you yeah and the reaction to me calling it out was hands up i i was partly backed into a corner by somebody putting a list on facebook that was nothing to do with me and blaming me. So that I'm not going to say much more about it, but there's not much you can do. You can't defend yourself against something that you didn't do. And people wanted me to say stuff or, you know, and but that that's what happens. And I wrote a blog if anyone's interested in reading it. I wrote about if you are called out for abuse. And and please can I be really clear that my list I have to say my list 
is a list, it's, a, it's as me as an events manager, a list of people who have caused trouble. I never accused people on my list of being sex offenders or paedophiles or anything like that. What my list was, was trouble causes, limiting their ability to perform. So that, do you know what, it's not illegal. That's why you need to be called out if you do it, because so much of this, it's on that edge of legality. We're not, we've got no other redress. We have to call it out. So my blog talks about if you got called out for something, mm. deal with it. Either you're innocent, so then make a statement saying, I'm innocent. The other thing is that in, in that blog I talk about, and if you did do something, there are ways of being productive about this. One of the things that came out of this is three guys who had been called out and they, they, were, they were on a lot of promoters lists, apologized publicly. They knew exactly what it was about and they named the incident and they all three of them said, we are really sorry for this. They stood by and let something happen and they were literally mortified and it came across loud and clear. Now, if you know those three guys, I'm not mentioning names, book them. Book them and encourage them for just that action, the bravery of standing up and admitting. Because yeah. no one's perfect. No. No one's perfect. What I learned recently and ties into my whole growing up being Arab and Muslim is that I will now go on the record and saying that, yeah, there were many a time when I'd be around friends of the same heritage that would be anti-Jewish and it started to rub off. But it was when I moved to Egypt as a teacher of history and I started to really go into the full-on I knew bits and pieces about World War II but then I really went down so many documentaries that spoke about World War II do come onto the area of the Holocaust and it was General Eisenhower because at first when the Soviets because they were occupying more of German territory before the Allies were they were coming across these death camps sending pictures and films and Everyone in the Western press were saying, no, this is Soviet propaganda. This can't be happening. This can't be real. But then the Americans discovered the camps for themselves. Later on, Patton and Eisenhower, two of the biggest generals in World War II history, Patton ran behind a house and threw up at what he saw at the Holocaust death camps. Eisenhower's face went white, and then he just suddenly said, get the world press film everything because there's going to be someone in the future that's going to say this never happened and lo and behold there have been world leaders that have said that never happened there have been nutcases that said it never happened and no it did happen i was just going to say at university i did criminal justice and domestic violence as a module now what's interesting was the reasoning behind choosing it when i was living at my second year of university, I was in off-campus accommodation and a friend used to come over a lot. We'd play GameCube. His name was Chris, I think, Chris George. And he was doing the social welfare. I was doing sociology. And uh, he turned around and he said, mate, 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 we've got to do this course, criminal justice and domestic violence. It's essay-based. Now in the stoner student universe, an essay-based class is a gem because you don't have to study for an exam. You just type an essay. First day of classes, me and Chris, we come in. We're the only guys there. There's like about maybe 20 other female students, different ages, different backgrounds, but it's just a room full of women and me and Chris. In comes the lecturer, an elderly woman. And I'm never gonna forget word for word her opening speech welcoming us to her class. Many women get offended and upset at the nature of this class, and some can get very angry towards men. In one class, a woman once shouted that all men should be castrated. Now, upon hearing that, I look at Chris and I go, what the fuck have you brought me into and I look at all the women I'm like going not me not me please I don't want to get castrated. <laughs> but then I started to study the course the domestic violence aspect of society it's it's a very dark area and we could totally do another episode I think there's so much to be said and we've only just touched on that no that's fair that's fair that's absolutely fair I think I'd like to let my co-anchor ask this next question 
Well, I think we all know we we could sit here for hours and talk about the ins and outs of all the incidents and all the people. But I think one of the biggest things that you and I had a discussion about when we were talking privately was about you continuing to keep your feet moving metaphorically. You're continuing to write, you're continuing to engage in that creativity in some way or another. And creator's block is the bane of many of creative, yet many are adapting to the current global upheaval via socio-technological evolutions. Do you have any advice for newcomers and what tips and tricks do you use to combat your creative block? It's such a lovely question. When lockdown first started, I did loads of videos. Um, and there's this funny story. <laughs> a lovely, it's a lovely story, this, because... I did a video and it was about why they need a goth prime minister. <laughs> and I posted, uh, you know, I posted it in, um, I honestly could have done a better job than Boris, but so could a bag of dog shit splurted from a trebuchet into a bush. Um, <laughs> you can edit out it's that. It's too I actually think one of the key things I'd say in terms of advice is, um, if you go outside of the world of comedy is where you're going to get the, the criticism. It's true. And what really fascinated me was which ones got attention. So creative block, what I would say is, that's, the t that's my tip creatively, is you need criticism. And I read this brilliant, a brilliant article, which was ask someone to slate you because that's where you grow, that's where you learn. Find someone that you trust enough to, to pull you apart. And comedians aren't gonna do that for you. They're either gonna compete with you or they're gonna fob you off. That, that's, they're not gonna help you, so go outside. So if, for example, your material is a certain thing, find a group. If you do yummy mummy type comedy, get in a mum's group, put your video <laughs> in there, get them to criticize you. If your comedy is, medieval warfare get yourself in a medieval warfare group i mean i've had some brilliant feedback one of the most popular youtube videos i've done is me putting a thong on my head thousands of views don't don't ask me why that's so funny it's a goth wearing her knickers on her head as you do can't i can't fathom that out and that's the thing with comedy, you have no idea, especially when you've been on your own for 112 days, you've no idea what's funny anymore. So how do you rediscover that? I was really lucky. This is, I'm gonna brag now. Go on. I have four degrees. The first one, this one is in archeology. span And yeah, this is- that, That's, that's some yeah. impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I so went I did, to three I universities, but I only have one degree. So that's like the opposite of the spectrum. <laughs> It's like I tried I tried interior design. I was like, fuck this shit. I tried landscape architecture. I thought it was a fancy word for gardening. Turned out to be the most lucrative industry <laughs> I could have been in. And I could have retired by the and like Corona. I'd been like, lockdown, what lockdown? I'm on I'm playing in real stormtrooper outfits with my friends. <laughs> and I don't know what, but no, I decided to do sociology, which <laughs> even my mother was like, what are you gonna do with a degree in sociology? Well, I, I did archaeology. I then did a degree in museum studies. And this is the story I was going to tell you about um, getting into comedy. Yeah. My first job as a curator was a curator of an Egyptian collection. I say Egyptian collection loosely. It was four mummies, a head and a hand. And <laughs> it turned out two of my mummies were related. They were related to each other. They did um, some tests up in Manchester on them. It was, it was amazing. They were brother and sister. I could honestly talk for hours about that, but I got that job. My degree is in funerary archeology, span but I specialized mostly in Anglo-Saxons. I really was completely unprepared for um, being a curator of e Egyptians. So, you know, people had introduced me as an Egyptologist. And so I started the comedy was because I didn't know stuff. People had asked me about Ramesses and I'd go, which Ramesses? There was 11 of them. And then I'd tell a joke about if the second one is Ramesses the Great, and then you get to the 11th, what are you gonna call him? You got Ramesses the Brilliant, Ramesses the Fantastic. By the time you get to 11, it's Ramesses the, well, he wasn't so bad. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> I did that. 
So everyone forgot the question about Ramesses that I didn't actually know the answer to. <laughs> Was one I, of them I, Ramesses the butch? <laughs> <laughs> That's a Ghostbusters 2 reference. Yeah. Wasn't he also known yeah. as Vigo the Butch? <laughs> One of my favorite things to ask an audience when I'm MCing is, you know, the idea of an epinom, if you had a name and something after you, like Vlad the Impaler, that's got to be the best one there is. After that, no one can compete with being the Impaler. But I love to ask audiences when I'm MCing, what would be your epinom, like, you know, Susan, Susan the Bald, <laughs> Susan, you know, just tell me, all, and I, I, I love doing that, I do another one where I'm like, if you were a demon, what three things would I need to put in this pentagram to summon you, and, <laughs> but I love it, like, it's great, because some people are so predictable, you know, that you know someone's going to say bottle of Chardonnay at some point, and if I was a demon, the three things you'd need to summon me would be a Nintendo Switch, seven ounces of weed, <laughs> and a laptop. <laughs> it's but it's such it's a with lovely a way to get to know account. your audience with a Netflix account. A Netflix account with a Netflix yeah. account. You get those three in the pentagram. It's also safe. I summon you. Hey, what's happening? Hey, I see you got everything. Yeah. Okay, let's party. Let's party. And do you know, it's a much better way. I don't really like doing the, you know, who are you, where you come from. Although I once had brilliant, where my entire audience decided to be called Steve. They were like, what's your name, Steve? What's your name, Steve? And they just all said they were called Steve. It was just great fun. But creatively, there's a reason for me bragging about my degrees. So I did teaching qualification and then I did a master's and business administration. Ooh. And during my MBA, I did a module on creativity, innovation, and change. The techniques for inventing a new product and how you get your brain to be more creative are all the ones I use in my workshops with comedians. I'm not saying I'm a fantastic comedian. What I'm mm. saying is I know a fair bit about creativity. Do these activities and you'll be able to be more creative. And so a lot of it is like getting the right side and the left side of your brain to work together. The idea of divergent and convergent thinking where you open up ideas, you brainstorm with others, then you bring it in, then you turn it into a joke, then you mess about with a joke, you, you diverge again. All of the, the theory of innovation for business applies to comedy too. Wow. I was doing Zoom workshops for comedians using these techniques. I was offering like one-to-one business advice and I, I, on my blog there's like how to do a skills audit if you need to find a job at the moment because you can't do comedy my blog isn't just a big rant of, you know, I love men just some of them have annoyed me this year well I don't think I'm one of them <laughs> you're you're one of my favorite people oh stop it flattery gets you everywhere well I was gonna say in your native Finnish and I think I'm gonna screw it up which is Finnish for selfless promotion. Shameless. Shameless. <laughs> Self-promotion. What did I just say? Selfless? I have no idea what you said, but I'm just looking at the... the, the look at the time. I've not got... I never wear a watch. Yeah, um, no, I know. It's super hermentic because it's now in the morning. Yes, no, we've broken... We have broken the record with the longest episode. So what have you got going? And we shall wrap this up. Chrome Polish, it's the podcast we do. It's ridiculous. It's very, it's a bit goth. It's mostly silly songs, stupid stories. I write horror stories with a twist of comedy for it. And then I get random people to do the voices for it. It's just ridiculously silly. Give that a listen. So that's, that's Chrome Polish is the podcast. My blog, which is Her Dark Materials. And it's basically the idea of, you know, I'm a wandering star. Wandering star for whom it is returned, reserved, blackness, darkness forever. Um, that's proper goth, that is. <laughs> I, I was wondering, wandering star, that doesn't sound very goth. Ah, then the darkness, yeah, there you go. <laughs> it, typo it's, negative it's all not over. Lead. What's it called? 
Was it Lee, Lee Mar Marvin? I was born at of hundreds. So that one, not that. Different one, the one in the Bible, the one by Porter said. <laughs> the blog is various rants on things. So that's that. And I don't know if I'll ever do stand up again because I don't, I don't know where it's going. Where's it going to be? Who knows? Available for bookings, of course, if you promise not to kill me. Uh, I tend not to kill my acts. I mean, the only way an act ever dies on my stage is if they're material bombs and they self-implode on their material. But other than that, I'm happy to say I've never, ever killed any of my acts that I've booked. In the five years of Ronan comedy, nope. I did no blacklist murder. a That's joke. That's solid. I blacklisted yeah. a joke thief for life, but no, I've never killed any yeah. comedian. Look, there was a lesson I learned very early on, I think maybe my third gig, was context is key. Elizabeth, you've been a phenomenally, profoundly open, and thank you for sharing. And my co-anchor, I would like to thank Miss mm. Felix. You've just earned at least 30,000 points to Hufflepuff with your profoundly <laughs> epic contributions <laughs> to my podcast. <laughs> Thank you again. Free Space, would you like to give us a little information as to what's Free Space involvement or who Free Space are? Free Space is a grassroots organization I started. The goal is to offer basic supportive services. Um, and listen, guys, I, I just want to say it's been an absolute joy meeting the two of you. It really was. You know, both of you have been so incredibly supportive. And even though it's still kind of been going on, the nonsense, you know, mm. Thank, thanks for everything. Thanks for everything you've done to support me over the last few months. That's been amazing. Well, to huh? wrap up in the words huh? of Frederick Douglass, without struggle, there can be no progress. Yeah. Nice, deep and profound quote. Not usually found on the show with no name. This has been <laughs> Elizabeth Black with my co-anchor, Julia Felix, on Safe Abu Candios, the show with no name, available on Google Play, and Spotify, as well as free episodes on limited data on Anchor FM until they change their terms and conditions, thereby <laughs> making me shoot myself in the foot. Peace be upon you, namaste, and all that jazz.